The Mysteries of Watergate, Big Questions About Big Journalism. I want to talk to you tonight from my heart on a subject of deep concern to every American. Those who hate you don't win unless you hate them. I've been charged with involvement in a full, free, and absolute pardon unto Richard Nixon. What has come to be known as the Watergate Affair. Hello, I'm John O'Connor, author of Postgate, How the Washington Post Betrayed Deep Throat, Covered Up Watergate, and Began Today's Partisan Advocacy Journalism. In the first 20 episodes, we have outlined what we posit was the true narrative of Watergate. Many of the facts, particularly the most salient, relevant facts, had not been widely known or even known to anyone outside the Post, law enforcement, and a few key actors in the scandal. But if our findings, conclusions, and inferences are correct, then something was likely amiss with what has been touted as the greatest feat of investigative journalism the world has ever known. Could it be that the post-reporting was either wildly incompetent or spectacularly fraudulent? Certainly, if we are correct in our main narrative, even if there might be quibbles about some details and inferences, the post has a lot of explaining to do. And it just may be that the delta between actual truth and the post-reported truth is incapable of innocent explanation. So there are, at the least, a number of large questions raised by our treatment of the scandal. In this episode, we will frame these questions and asserted contradictions and then attempt to address them in subsequent episodes. The initial argument against our narrative that leaps to mind for many is simply the argument from authority. That is, just as the Catholic Church Fathers say there are three persons and one God, by the very fact that this doctrine comes from designated authority, makes it inarguably true for believing Catholics, as I am. By this reasoning, the Post is recognized as the leading authority on Watergate, and therefore if the Post claims our narrative is false, and that its narrative is true, it must be so. But the authority the Post wields, unlike that of any religious institution, should be grounded in earthly fact, not religious doctrine, which by its very nature usually is agreed by the faithful to be unassailable in its major tenets by virtue of its authority springing from a higher power. But for some, perhaps only a small group, this argument, circular that it is, carries weight. One podcast listener who originally gave us five stars suddenly backtracked and downgraded the podcast to two stars on the grounds, it seems, that our podcast contravenes too much authoritative post-reporting. Now, it would not surprise us if some post-acolyte persuaded the blogger to do this, and we have encountered hostility from post-quarters before. If you wish a dishy treatment of the very petulant post-attempts to silence yours truly, please refer to Postgate. In any case, I would suggest that an argument based on the supposed infallibility of the post, especially after listeners have heard the first 20 episodes, has been soundly disproven. But what about the argument that a Pulitzer Prize board examined its reporting? That one, in short, seems to be a non-starter. There's nothing to suggest that the Pulitzer judges attempted to vet the reporting, which, to be fair, was loudly and wildly praised at the time. And a number of Pulitzer Prizes have been given out in the past for what turned out to be falsely favorable reporting on the two most murderous regimes in world history, that of Joseph Stalin and Adolf Hitler. 
So the award of a Pulitzer Prize to the Post means very little. But unlike the Pulitzer Prize board, there actually were juries that did consider our revisionist treatment. These two juries are those who rendered verdicts in the case of Wells v. Lydian, retried a second time after an appeal of the first verdict. Both verdicts were rendered in favor of Liddy, the first by a 7-2 vote, the second after retrial, after appeal, by a 9-0 vote. In essence, after lengthy trials with excellent trial counsel, with the lowest burden of proof cognizable in our system, that is, by preponderance of the evidence, plaintiffs Maxie Wells and Spencer Oliver Jr. could not prove it false that they had been running a call girl referral system. We alluded in earlier episodes to the bizarre post-editorial written with bitter, wounded tone, decrying the first verdict. The Post compared the verdict to wacky theories of Holocaust deniers and an undescribed verdict about the assassination of Martin Luther King. As any experienced trial lawyer will tell you, there is no engine that is better for the determination of truth than cross-examination. The very good lawyers on both sides in Wells v. Liddy had weeks of opportunity for full disclosures and cross-examination to test those disclosures. It is therefore reasonably inferred that the Wells verdicts were thumping rejections of the conventional story of Watergate, written almost exclusively by the Post. To be fair, the newspaper business has its own imperatives, with daily deadlines to be met while hurriedly attempting to get to the readers the best available facts. Certainly some rapid selection, some quick curation, some on-the-spot discretion must be exercised in determining what was fact for the reader. In doing so, with a healthy skepticism toward all things Nixon, the Post understandably may have discounted facts veering away from pure Nixon venality. And certainly by the late 1990s and early 2000s, after years of sleuthing by researchers like Jim Hogan, Len Kolodny, and others, after FOIA documents, that's Freedom of Information Act, documents were garnered, and yes, after Liddy finally published his memoirs, new facts might have emerged which in good faith were either not encountered by the Post in the early 70s or received in such a way that they did not appear reliable. Its Wells v. Liddy reaction could have just been one of wounded pride for having negligently missed key facts. So we here present the possibility that the Post may have missed a part of the story in good faith while telling a major part very well. We leave that to you, the jury. In addition to the Wells v. Liddy verdict, we have in this series previously presented a wealth of information comprising both direct and circumstantial evidence, albeit more of the latter, in support of the revisionist story. That said, it is one thing to say that our narrative is the best interpretation of the evidence, but quite another to contend that the Post should have figured this all out during the scandal. This complex web of deceit known as Watergate has been proven mainly by lengthy close examination of circumstantial evidence, while discounting much direct evidence, that is, statements by principals such as Dean and McCord. It could potentially be viewed as an undue burden to place on the Post reporters who had neither time to reflect nor the advantage of subsequently ferreted out documents to be combed and viewed at leisure by researchers. Indeed, this is the view I held till 2010 
when I began researching Postgate. If all this is so, why is the question of the Post's intent to deceive so important today? Didn't this scandal begin close to 50 years ago? What is the pertinence either to us today or to history? We respond that the question is quite central to the most important issues roiling society today and is especially important in the writing of history, as Watergate is becoming history and no longer a current event. During Watergate years, the great majority of Americans, left and right, trusted the media. If they had not, the country would never have reached consensus on Nixon. Let's pause and reflect on that demonstrated reality. A media perceived to be fair can broker democratic compromise. But after review, was that consensus fraudulently obtained? Did it begin as a result draining the reservoir of public trust in the media? If the country was in fact defrauded in Watergate, it's a strong argument against reliance by our divided country on what appears to be a partisan media. But secondly, and more importantly, such deceit would suggest that a major cause of current division is untruths promulgated by that same partisan media given its birth in Watergate journalism. The Post has long boasted with great credibility, and virtually all sectors have long agreed that Watergate was a journalistically impelled scandal. In other words, the post-Watergate reporting profoundly affected the course of our country's history. It not only knocked out of office the politically popular, if not likable, President Nixon, but it also greatly influenced the election of Jimmy Carter over Gerald Ford. According to pollsters, Watergate was a key issue in favor of Carter, who constantly promised, in a clear slap at the Republicans of Watergate, quote, a government as good as the American people, unquote. Carter begat Reagan— an avowedly conservative leader hammered by the media for same, while Democrats reacted by becoming more openly leftist. All, it would appear, as a result of Watergate. The Reagan presidency seemed to set in stone the media's cheerleading, begun with Watergate, for all things, quote, liberal, unquote, the modern term progressive being more apt, and against all things, quote, conservative, unquote, the term classic liberal, more fitting. But the point here is, a new form of media resulted from Watergate, one openly partisan, attempting to influence political outcomes, not merely reporting on them. How so? Well-regarded former Rolling Stones reporter Matt Taibbi is a good authority to cite on this subject because he acknowledges that he is quite far left politically and indeed criticizes the media from the radical left standpoint. Taibbi has noted, and we agree, that post-Watergate, a new crop of so-called investigative reporters aspired to be on the other side of the velvet rope, that is, part of the powerful elite controlling society. This new brand of post-Watergate journalists is far away from the likes of H.L. Mencken, Damon Runyon, and Jimmy Breslin, who were separate and apart from and skeptical of the elites of both left and right. In this regard, if a journalist wishes to be part of the political power structure, as this new breed does, that individual must pick a team. It is only natural that the team in this case would be democratic and left, since it is the natural home of writers, and the issues would therefore be reported accordingly. If these reporters were all conservative, that would be of equal concern. 
The point is the effect of partisanship on reporting. This all being so, of what significance would it be if the Post deliberately misreported Watergate? Better put, of what significance would it be if our society as a whole adopts a newly formed, wide consensus view that Watergate journalism was a fraud? Such would confirm the growing suspicion that journalists are not coming at stories from a position of truthfulness. The press, in other words, would be exposed as doing something other than speaking truth to power. Indeed, in many cases, the truth speaker and the truth seeker just might be those persons or groups the media seeks to skewer. Therefore, a judgment of the post-fraud on Watergate would be a powerful weapon for society's conventional thinkers targeted by journalists today. After all, it is difficult for a mafia don to be credibly indignant when accusing another of extortion. A judgment of fraud on the post for its Watergate reporting would, in our view, encourage humility and balance and give the country much better reporting for its democratic issues and skirmishes. The whole notion that those who emulate the post style of Watergate reporting that is, CNN, MSNBC, the New York Times, have themselves been possibly guilty of fraud, certainly destroys the moral high ground they claim to inhabit. Perhaps enlightened liberalism can function better when the press adopts a more neutral, humble posture and lets the chips fall where they may. But let's put all of that aside. It is simply of great historical value whether a president was removed from office by willfully practiced journalistic deceit. Watergate would now take on an entirely different historical meaning, dramatically reversing the narrative of good and evil, white hat and black. Shades of gray would again be introduced, and the idea that all humans are by their very nature flawed, regardless of party or politics might be a better way of brokering and assuaging modern society's arguments. So, with this lead-up, how in this series can we determine the question of the Post's willfulness in its Watergate reporting? Let's look in coming episodes about whether the Post reported the facts surrounding the burglary arrest as fully and accurately as they could have, knowing what its reporters likely, underline likely, knew. For instance, did the Post know the location of the open drawers and camera clamps and fail to inform the reader of this important fact? And can we infer that the Post concealed this these facts for a reason? And did the Post know of the existence of the key held by Martinez and the struggle with Officer Schaffler to keep from him the key, risking his life to rid himself of it? Did the Post have reason to know of Mullen's cover contract? What about Hunt's planned CIA defense? This clearly would involve an acknowledgment by Hunt that he considered himself to be working as an undercover CIA agent, and more importantly, in a mission of national security. If the mission was truly of national security, what was it? That would not involve campaign intelligence, would it? Did it report what it knew fully and completely about this defense? And if it learned the possibility of a CIA defense, wouldn't the logical next step be to determine the facts upon which such a defense would be based and present it to the country. Indeed, is there any evidence that the Post reporting was distorted to give the reader the view that the CIA was most certainly not involved in Watergate? Another issue. Did the Post reporters likely know of the prosecutor's plans to question Baldwin on his meretricious overhearings? 
What effect would that story have been on the public's view of this puzzling story? What about the prosecution's plans to prove Hunt's purported blackmail motive? Did the Post know of this intent and conceal it? If there was, in fact, a possible blackmail, shouldn't the Post have reported by whom, of whom, about what? Wouldn't this have a bearing upon our most important political scandal? Wouldn't this have a bearing about whether Richard Nixon should be removed from office? Democracies thrive on discussion and debate. Was our discussion and debate short-circuited by the failure of the Post to bring up these issues? What did the Post learn about Pennington? Is there any proof of deliberate failure to write of his role as McCord's apparent handler? After all, wasn't his role secret even within the CIA? Did the Post learn of Pennington's pickup of McCord at the jail, or could it have easily done so through its police contacts? What about his burning of documents at McCord's home? We have gone over evidence pointing to McCord's undercover status. Paraphrase the words of Senator Howard Baker about President Nixon's guilt. We should ask about the Post. What did the Post know, and when did it know it? We asked the same questions about the roles of Lou Russell, Michael Stevens, and the elusive John Dean. There have been writings by dedicated researchers that have revealed truths about Watergate during the long post-Watergate period. Did the Post welcome these, quote, revisions, unquote, or did it fight them? As any trial lawyer knows, when one party fights the introduction of evidence, when it tries to suppress evidence, this can be inferred to be evidence of a guilty mind. So in this regard, how did the Post respond to Gordon Liddy's refreshing tell-all disclosures in 1980? How about the Watergate Committee Minority Report of Senator Howard Baker? Did the Post respond truthfully to the allegations of Senator Baker, or did it attempt to cover them up? All of this exploration, in short, will tell us whether the post-Watergate reporting is a, quote, proof of concept, unquote, of the validity of modern journalism. If it is proof of a practice of deceit in service of partisanship, that proof affects all of the project of modern journalism exposing its foundations as rotten and rotting, soon to cause collapse of our nation's democratic norms. I trust that the listeners will realize that answering these questions will affect the journalism of both the left and the right. We hold to the skepticism of Enlightenment liberalism and do not attempt to hold to sacred cows the journalism of right, left, or center. In any case, we will get into these questions in coming episodes. We will present facts, inferences, and arguments, and let you, the jury of public opinion, decide the most important questions of today's divided society, divided largely by partisan journalism. We hope that you will stay with this exploration as part of a democratic exercise. If you find against many of my arguments or reject my inferences, that would be a healthy development for our society and certainly just as important as accepting them. Important goal is open, fair debate and discussion. I have lost cases before, and if I lose one here, fine and good. So we look forward to seeking with you answers to the big questions about big journalism. Thank you for listening. I've just completed a book on the same subject, entitled The Mysteries of Watergate. 
what really happened. While it covers the material in our podcast, I have added two chapters of contextual materials and removed the repetition needed for a podcast. For those enjoying this series, it will serve as a valuable historical reference. For your non-listening friends, it will prove enlightening and entertaining. Thank you for your support.